Hello, welcome to Straight from the Cutter's Mouth, a retina podcast. Each week, you're brought insights and perspectives in the world of vitreoretinal surgery. And we are not your host, Jay Shreether. For this special 250th episode, we're taking over as guest hosts. I'm Bilal Ahmed, host of the podcast, Honestly Bilal. And I'm Ben Young, one of the hosts for the podcast, Eyes for Ears. Now, you, the people, were asked what you wanted for this special episode 250, and you voted for an interview with Dr. Jay Shreether. Hey, this is Ed. So this is a podcast, is that right? This is. Okay. We're officially podcasting right now. That's awesome. Welcome to Straight from the Cutter's Mouth, a Retina podcast. So, welcome to your own show, Dr. Shreether. What does episode 250 mean to you? First of all, that was the best intro, I think, in any of the 250 episodes. I think this is a good time to retire this would be a dramatic moment. Uh, you guys did a great <laughs> job. Um, you know, it's kind of surreal in a way. It, it, it's it, it's crazy to think that 100 was so long ago. It doesn't seem like that long ago. And then I looked at the date, and it was like two and a half years ago. And 2020 has Gosh. felt like five years in one. So uh, I think the number one thing, obviously, there's pride in the team and everything. But I think the number one thing was just, oh, man, time is going super fast. Because I don't think I, feel, I don't feel like 100 was that long ago. That's fair. So what about things in Miami right now? I, I know you had a recent staycation. What did you do during that time? Uh, it was not. It was it was very relaxing. Uh, I spent a lot of time with my family. Um, I've got a big family, multiple siblings. Um, we watched movies. We grilled outside. We I slept more than I probably should have, but it makes up for the rest of the time when I'm not sleeping as much as I should have. Um, played some tennis. It was it was nice. It was it was very relaxed. You know. Oh, nice. A lot of summer vacations have gotten disrupted, uh, and I feel bad for the kids out there because I used to love summer vacation when I was a kid, and um, I think that we've all had to kind of adjust and adapt, uh, and we aren't really <laughs> traveling much, right, because you know we're trying to not right. expose ourselves as physicians, and also the hospitals kind of want us to stay local as things get a little more crazy. I think we're recording this, what, this is July 17th, 2020, I mean, we're probably going to see some sort of lockdown uh, in Miami, I think, in the next week or two. I don't know how severe it will be, but mm. it's going to be necessary at some point. Fair enough. Well, that's a depressing topic. We don't want to go there, but <laughs> tell us a little about your month and what's the, what's the W of your month? What's something you did that you feel kind of proud of? Or what's a win for you? Oh, the last month. That's, you know, uh, that's a great question. I, I think that not to be cliche, I actually really enjoyed seeing our fellows graduate. Uh, we couldn't have a, a typical graduation. Uh, we had to have kind of this e-graduation via Zoom. And uh, I did my best using the chat function to really hype people uh, as they graduated. But uh, the class, that, the first of all, the residency class that graduated was the first class I was with, with from start to finish. Because I came in in September um, when I started four years ago. So this is the first class I was there from the very, very beginning. And they went through a lot. I mean, that's a class that went through a hurricane and a closure um, together. That's a class that went through at the end of their residency through coronavirus. Um, they had people in the class who went through significant tragedy. Um, they went through a lot and they really, you know, came out of the other side really strong. But it was really kind of just spending time with our fellows who graduated, you know, I rotated with um, I'm going to give him a shout out. J.J. Echegarri is one of our senior fellows, finished the year with me on the rotation. We just had a last the last couple of weeks was great, you know. We just did cases, you know, we talked about life, we talked about 
preparing. He's going to Case Western to be an attending. And that's kind of the cool part of being an attending is kind of seeing everything come full circle where you're like, well, I don't really have anything left to teach you at this point. Now it's time for you to go out and learn something to teach me. Um, Maybe that happens earlier for me than for other attending. So that was cool. Nice. And we can't just ask you about what your one of the month is. We're on this to be mean. So can you tell us about, do you have an L of the month, a loss of the month that, um, oh. th- that was maybe disappointing? Oh, absolutely. Uh, that's, that's, I'm trying to think. I have so many L's on a daily basis. Oh no. Uh, this one, this one. Welcome to the team. <laughs> you know, I think, um, without getting too much into details, I think one of the most challenging things, I don't want to get depressing, but, um, I just think it's really challenging sometimes to manage patients in the setting of, of a pandemic where you have closures, you have patient fears, you have a lot of patients being lost to follow up, trying to keep track of everybody, making sure you're doing the right things. Your surgical, de- I'll just keep it simple, Ben, you're starting your fellowship. Your surgical decision-making has to be a little bit different, right? Because now you're thinking, well, what if I'm not able to reoperate on this patient if there's a closure? or what if this patient isn't able to come back or and sometimes patients won't be able to come back they're coming from outside the country and they got to go home and quarantine for two weeks they're probably not going to come back well maybe i'm going to be a little more conservative in my decision making and some of those decisions it's, that's part of the our job is to make the tough decisions um but it's almost like the rules of the game changed halfway and uh, i'll say i don't think any of us have done perfectly i won't get into specifics but there's definitely some things i wish i had done differently in the context of the pandemic I'm like man like if i knew that this was going to happen I would have done X during this procedure and maybe the patient would have done better. And that's that's always the thing you try to, to keep in mind. Um, I don't know, the only other L I can think of is not having NBA basketball for this long has been killing me. Uh, I've probably spent way too much of my time watching old games on YouTube. Um, <laughs> me and a, a couple of ophthalmologists who are friends, we went through, actually we Zoom called the last one, we thought about releasing it as an episode or like a phone call, but we agreed there was too much trash talking. Oh. Um, but we actually redrafted um, decades. Uh, we created super teams for each decade. We redrafted. You, it was all. On, it was on the clock. Um, it nice. was cool. It was a lot of fun. It was way more fun than it should have been. It's super nerdy, but um, no, no, that's actually pretty know. sweet. Yeah, we finished with the the ni- the nineties. We finished the nineties. Yeah, we finished with the nineties draft. That was awesome. That was that was a lot of fun. Oh, good um, time. Yeah, that's a good, nice era. Yeah, there was a lot of trash talking. I bet. <laughs> I know one of the uh, choices for what this episode would be would be an NBA only episode, and I'm very sorry, Doctor Shu, that that did not win. Well, and you're part stuck of my, with us I'm trying now. to convert it. Yeah, you tell. That one. I'm trying to slowly convert it if I can. Yeah, uh, this is me being evasive. Yeah, you know, episode 300. Episode yeah, right 300, right. NBA only. This will become. Um, uh, so, our next question is is related to um, you know I think maybe part of the motivation for why you invited um, me and Bilal on to this episode is uh, we are, you know, working on um, a, a, a small research project together. Mm-hmm. And as part of working on this project, I was just looking for like a sample paper to help base it off of. And I, you know, just, I knew that you had done a couple studies like what we were doing. So I was just looked up your studies in PubMed and I found out that you have way too many publications for your my hands. you know academic age for how long you you've been out there <laughs> and like found out you're already an associate professor um which for i think you know maybe for students they won't maybe have as much perspective on this but i think in my opinion at the point you are in your career to be a associate professor already at a place like you are at is amazing so our question is how do you do it so i mean the the 
the, the very, I mean, the, the, there's a couple of things here. First of all, disclaimers, just because you have a lot of publications does not mean that you've done as much or has high an impact as some people may have very few publications, right? So Norm Beyer is a famous name in the retina world. He published, sure. I think, 20 something papers in his whole career, but every single one of them was like a seminal paper that's cited hundreds of times, like rewrote the way we look at uh, retinal pathology, right? So this is not on that scale. I mean, not even close. And I have friends who have published right. less who have been way more impactful in their short time. So let's start with that. Um, I've been blessed with some very, very good mentors. You know, it's funny. We, you kind of broached this idea. I tried not to, to, I told you guys purposely not to tell me about what you're going to ask because I think it's more genuine and honest if I'm not prepped. <laughs> yeah, but, that's true. But you kind of spilled the beans a little bit on this one. So I was thinking about this and I was going back through my head. I'm like, so I didn't really, I'll be very frank. I didn't do research. You know, I'm, I'm very honest about that. Um, I was in a combined medical program. It was very fast. I, I did the two years. I didn't take the time for research. And then I had the summer off between undergrad and med school and I actually signed up with, a, my sister was older than me. She had worked in a lab when she was an undergrad. And I signed up with the same doctor to, to work in his lab. And I worked one day, it was a basic science oncology lab. And I, I really didn't like it. And I was like, I only have six weeks till school starts. Is this what I want to be doing? And I made a pretty immature, mature decision where I went to him the next day. And I was just like, look, like my heart's not in this. I don't know if I want to be doing this this summer. I really just want to spend time with my friends and just like hang out and I know that's like kind of a silly thing that you're supposed to say, but that's what I did. And I, I, I actually quit. And it was one of the hardest conversations I had had to, up to that point in my life was telling somebody like, I actually just don't want to do this because uh, we're so used to kind of just doing mm. the things we're supposed to do. And it was a great decision. I, I had a, my best friend at the time. We sat, we literally, I would just go over to his house. We would spend six hours together. We would, you know, watch basketball games. We would play video games, go play basketball. And it was good, and I have no regrets about that. Um, in medical school, again, between first and second year, a lot of people yeah. you know, had opportunities to do research. We only had six weeks off. A lot of people were doing research at Baskin Palmer. I was a student at UM. I didn't have an interest in ophthalmology, and I was like, look, man, I only got six weeks. I don't want to be around here. And that, I don't think that was the most mature decision. I probably should have done some research or something. But you know, I went, I went with my family to Europe. I relaxed. I enjoyed my summer, and I came back. Um, but it was what I needed to recharge at that time. Um, so the question is, so when did I start doing research? I started doing research my second year of med school. I did some neurosurgery research. Uh, I did some oncology research, but nothing that was publication worthy or turned into pub. So I decided on opto as a third year medical student. And I was just like, I don't have anything, right? I, I've got zero publications. I've got zero shadowing in ophthalmology. I just really, really like this field. And I need to figure out how to make this work. Um, you know, I had applied for a year off because I hadn't been sure what I was going to do. I almost took a year and, and left. Um, and went to, I, I had an opportunity to, to go to NIH, um, which was, I was fortunate to have. And I ended up deciding not to do it because I was like, well, if I'm going to do ophthalmology research, you know, I'm, I couldn't be in a better place right now than to just do it here. But I actually thought about going to NEI. Uh, and that's a whole different, you know, fork in the road moment. But to make long story short, Byron Lamb is one of the neuro ophthalmologists, hereditary retinal disease specialists, was kind enough. I approached him and said, hey, I'd like to work with you on a project. And he took me under his wing and, and I worked with him an OCT project that, again, never actually resulted in publication, but at least got me my feet wet in terms of how to draft, you know, create a research project and draft an abstract and, and kind of go through that process. And then I applied in a different era than you guys, you know, I'm, I'm significantly older from an application cycle perspective. I applied in an era where it was okay necessarily not to have a ton of publications on your CV. We had people who did, uh, but I just had to have something that you had done that you could talk about. So I applied with that project and I had a case series that 
he asked me to write up. Um, and that was in process when I applied. I think if I applied with that today, unfortunately for the people who are applying now, I probably don't get any interviews because the, the game has completely changed. Ironically, as the world has become harder to publish in, we expect our medical students to publish more, which is kind of counterintuitive. But that was not necessarily the world we lived in then. Um, and I just think mm -hmm. about that first paper, right? That first paper, and Bilal, you can think about this. I don't know if you've written in Ben, you, I'm sure you remember your first paper. I was, I, I just yeah. felt so bad for Byron Lamb. What a, what a saint. We went through like <laughs> six or seven revisions and you evolve, right? I remember being between revisions. I would like put it off. I hated writing it. I was like, God, this is so painful, right? I have to sit here, look up references. I'm writing them down on paper. I'm like trying to find them. I barely knew how to use PubMed because I was not that skilled. And uh, we got through it. We got it published. And I was just so happy. And he was like, okay, you know, it's a case series. That's good for you. Uh, <laughs> no, and then... I feel, like, I feel like I'm living in your past. <laughs> no, I mean, it's a different world, but you're super excited, right? Like, because that's your first real thing. Right. And, and you put a lot of time and effort into yeah. it. And so, so you move forward, right? And then even as a resident, I was very clinically busy. Um, I started some projects. I was, again, very blessed to have co-residents who were very academically active. You know, uh, Ajay Kurian was probably my best friend, was my co-resident. He was super academically active. He's a basic scientist kind of mind and, and personality. Um, and... Uh, Dan Chow was one of our co-residents. He's a basic scientist. Yasha Modi, who's a clinician at NYU. Um, you know, Ben Erickson, who's now at Stanford. I mean, we had a really academic-minded group. And when you're around a group of people like that, you know, you start having interest in these things and talking about them and thinking about ways to design projects and publish. And yet again, when I applied for Retina Fellowship, uh, Ben and Bilal, I didn't. I was not somebody who had like ten or fifteen publications, right? So I applied. I had two or three publications. That's not much on top of what I'd done before. I had some things I was working on. But again, I was not applying. I was not an applicant who was strong on the basis of my research CV. Um, if there was a criticism about my application, it would have been, hey, this guy hasn't really done much academically. You know, yeah, he hasn't been doing it that long because he lost two years because he didn't do undergrad. But there just isn't that the same production as this other person across the room. Um, you know, so and then I was again, I was fortunate. I matched a great program. I was going to Wills. Um, and, you know, I would say the next kind of fork in the road is Terry Flynn, who's one of the attendings at Baskin, like the kind of the godfather of retina here. Um, he was he really, I think, influenced the way I write today because we wrote some papers together and he was so big on simplicity. He was so big on don't show bias in how, the way you write. I always talk to my students like your language needs to be simple. It needs to be non-biased. It needs to be objective. Right. He's, it's not about making flashy statements. It's about you, you have data and you present it and the reader makes up their own conclusions based on it. Um, and he right. was famous for his scribbles, man. We're still working on paper, right? We're, this is, we're printing it out and he he brings you a printout with scribbles and you go back to the computer and type them in and you send it back and he prints it out and he scribbles on it. I mean, this is, this is different, right? Than what I'm doing now with my students. So I go to Will's. So I debated about whether or not to tell this story on the podcast, but I think... And if we're going to be honest, and I ask my guests to be honest, I think this is a good story to tell. So I go to Wills. Um, I'm from Florida. I have an interest in academics. I want to go back to medical education. I'm interested in going back to Baskin Palmer as an attending. Uh, and I keep, my, my program director knew that, Aaron and Sivalingham, who was the program director at Wills. And I'll remember, I'll never forget it. It was, he had his annual like party for the residents and fellows were at his house. And he was with me and he's like so when you ha you got to get yourself back to Bascom and I'm like yeah you know I really want to go back it's my hometown I love the place it's, I, I love the residency 
He's like, you know, I talked to them, you know, they really think that you'd be a good fit, but you don't have the research CV. You really need to work on your research CV. And I was like, okay, so like, so what are we talking about? Like, what do I need to do? And he's like, you know, I think to be safe, you need about 50 publications. I was like, oh, (laughs) I mean, I've got like seven at this point. I I mean, I'm like, I have have like seven at this point. I'm like, I'm like, that took a lot of work to get seven. Like, I I didn't know if he was pulling my leg or not. I'll never know if he was serious or not. But I remember I went home and it was a Saturday and Sunday. I was like, okay, I did the math. I'm like, I got X amount of months to come up with 50 publications. Um, And so... I, I put, I, you know, I, grind, I grinded, you know, I, I, I had a goal, I had a reason I wanted to do it. Um, and I learned a lot. And then again, you around people who are academically inclined. My co-fellow, Hassan Rahimi, who was a senior fellow, he, he was someone who was very prolific and he published a lot and he knew how to write. And my co-fellow Ali Khan and Brian Hong were my class. They had written a lot coming into that. Um, and Wills was well set up. Alan Ho is one of the attendings there. We would have research meetings every Monday. And every Monday, each fellow had a little sheet that everyone got that showed the projects they were working on and what their progress was. And I thought that that was motivating and that organization was helpful. And I learned so much in those years. I learned how to layer your projects, right? So if you're going to create a research career, you want to have a layered set of projects. You want to have long-term projects, which are hopefully your trials or your your randomized control trials, things that may take years to come to fruition. They might be Mm multi-center. You want to have shorter term prospective, smaller projects. Then you want to have retrospective kind of projects that you can work on that may take a few months to put together. And then you have your really small things, your case reports, your case series, your images, things that you can do quickly. And you want to constantly be rotating these so you always have things cooking and you always have things you're working on. Um, this is one of the things Alan Ho was big on is you don't get stagnant, is you always have something that's being set up for later. You plan your next move. Um, and then you have to develop clinical questions. You have to develop actual real questions that you are interested in, that you think that people would be interested in. It's not just about publishing nothing, right? Um, I don't think right. every publication I've made has ever been super impactful, but I hope that every publication I've had has at least shared at least one important message, whether it's a case report or an image, or even if it's a big paper uh, or randomized trial that I've been involved in. I, hopefully there's at least one take-home message that someone reads that and they're like, okay, this can change my practice in this way, or this changes the way I manage a patient this way. And you get better at writing. The more you do it, uh, the more you collaborate, it becomes kind of, you know, Ben, you asked about those numbers, but it becomes kind of a snowball effect because the more you write, uh, the easier, the faster you become. The more you write, the more people you write with, the more projects you get on. Um, and the final thing is, just, you know, you learn tricks. Like I went through... I wrote a lot of papers, and I remember uh, our research fellow at the time, Aptin Shali, who was a resident at UCSF, one day he and I were talking, and I was like, you know, I like writing papers, but it's super painful to to sit there with a piece of paper and write. You know, I, I would sit there before I wrote a paper and write down the references for PubMed and write down the PubMed IDs, and then I'm like, every time I have to edit the paper and the attending changes the references, I got to sit there and like re calibrate and print it out and figure out where the references go. And this is like 30 publications in, and he just looks at me and he's like... <laughs> Have you ever heard of EndNote? And I'm like, <laughs> what's EndNote? <laughs> and he's like, oh my God, Jay. He's like, Jay, you're, you're kidding, right? You didn't write all those papers on paper. I'm like, I did. I would sit there at my computer at home and I would do everything on paper. And he's like, you are the oldest oh my person God. I've ever met. And he showed me how to use Zotero. And I was like, oh, okay, I can be super productive now. I can write a paper in like two hours. 
Um, you guys are like shaking your heads. You're like, man, how did you ever make it? I don't know how I made it, but I did. It worked out somehow. But my point is, so I'm being very, very honest and blunt. There's a lot of stories around the way to how you learn this stuff. Um, and then you evolve. Then you become mm-hmm. an attending and drastically, Ben, you're, you're going to graduate fellowship. You're going to be as productive as you can be. And then you're going to become an attending and your productivity is going to fall off a cliff. You're going to finish some products from fellowship. You have some things that will be published that year, but you're not going to have anything active anymore because no one's giving you things. Your fel- attendings aren't pointing out, hey, this would be something interesting to write up or this is an interesting project idea. It's just you. And then you mm-hmm. have to kind of for the first time decide this. What do I actually want to write about? Like if I why do I want to publish? And if I do want to publish, what are actually the topics that interest me? And I think there's a period for a few months where you you shouldn't really dive in. You're kind of figuring that out. Uh, I went through that process. That's the time I started the podcast because I didn't have any research going on and I didn't have any patience. So I started the podcast. Um, and then over time, you know, the way it's evolved for me is I, I actually I, I've developed projects in collaboration with other people. But it's just honestly the biggest reason I publish now, which is going to sound cliche, is I publish to help students because students need to have a they need it for their applications. B, they need to learn how to write if they have an interest in writing in the future. Um, and C, they're often looking for somebody who's approachable to be a mentor to help them achieve that and come up with project ideas. So a lot of times I'm coming up with project ideas because I have someone who approaches me is like, hey, I'm applying. Do you have any projects for me? And I'm like, well, actually, I don't. But I'm going to sit at home tonight and figure out if I can think of something you can do that's approachable that you can do at your level. Uh, because someone did that for me. Dr. Lamb did that for me at some point. And Dr. Flynn did that for me when I was a resident. And when I was a fellow, Dr. Ho and others, they did that for me as a fellow, right? So that's part of our responsibility is to turn it around. And then the publication process reverses. Now you're no longer the first author as often. Now you're the the corresponding author or last author in a lot of papers. It seems a lot easier. It is. You don't have to look up the reference yourself. But all of a sudden you realize, you know, you've got to guide people. And, And I've definitely been guilty when I first started of, maybe not being as proactive about editing things or rewriting things. So I was like, okay, you know, this is pretty good. And this is this guy's words. Well, maybe it doesn't get as favorable review when we get to a journal. And that's part of my responsibility as the corresponding author is I've got to step in and use my experience and my judgment to kind of rewrite things or reshape things, but do it in such a way that the student still gains something from it and learns. So finding that balance where you don't make it too painful a back and forth process, but you actually still help somebody learn from the process and, uh, and gain something. So very long answer to a short question, but you, you did give me a preview, so I had some time to think about this. That That's was, true. That was, that was awesome. Then I, I hope that gives your listeners a good perspective on, you know, how to kind of build an academic career and that people aren't just born knowing how to write papers. I think that's important for a I lot definitely of was not. people at our level. I definitely was not. And, you know, writing a paper is super <laughs> different, right? It's very different than writing anything else you've written in your life. Um, it, it, writing a paper is there is very non-colloquial. Unless you get super senior or you get to the point where people will just publish whatever you write, to be frank. Like, you really have to be structured and you have to be simple in your language. But it's, it's the best writers, and I can't say I'm one of them, they somehow are simultaneously creative. And yet they still kind of follow a scientific algorithm to how they write and they get away with it and it mm-hmm. reads beautifully. And you're like, man, like this is like prose, but it's not prose. Most of us, we're writing this blocky kind of scientific things. And I've heard, I've had very creative students or mentees who've been frustrated, who've been like, man, you're like, I want to write like what I want to write. I want to write like 
the way I would talk to somebody. I'm like, well, that's not actually the style. I mean, and you have to readapt your style. If you're writing for a peer review journal, that's going to be different than if you're writing for a, a trade journal. And that's going to be different than if you're writing for your blog. Like those are very different sort of writing styles. And I think that's the hardest thing is we have very, very good writers is learning how to adapt to each style. And writing a paper is not an innate ability. Sure. That kind of like leads into our, our next question, which is we know that you can't teach people how to like how to structure writing a paper in you know 30 minutes or five minutes or whatnot but can you take us through like maybe your general process like when you've got your data collection done mm -hmm. how do you sit down and write a paper i think you mentioned yeah. your last week's meeting you like to start with methods and results like yeah. how do you do it what do you go so at that point so hopefully you've collected your data you should know your methods and results at that point so that's the easiest thing to write so I would say, I actually would start, just like you, if you wrote an outline for a five paragraph essay when you were in high school, I think the easiest thing to do is, or it's the hardest thing, but it will make your life easier, is to write an abstract. Write as if you were writing a meeting abstract and you were limited, right? So write your methods and results in very simple terms. What are the two or three sentences you would use to describe your methods? And what are the two or three results that are gonna be critical to tell the reader? And then from there, you can expand that into a full section of your paper, your full methods for results. That should be actually the easiest thing to write because you have all that data in front of you. Now it's just a matter of presenting it. You know how you did it. It's just a matter of how do you present it. And then you have to look at it and say, well, what is the take home point of this paper? What am I actually trying to show? What did we aim to show? What did we actually show and what are the implications? And then you build your intro and conclusion. I always do that last because that takes the longest because that's the part where you need references. That's the part where you need to actually dig deep and look in the literature and say, hopefully you did some of that lit search when you were designing your project. Hopefully you had some literature that inspired your project that you saved along the way, but maybe things have come up since you started this project. Maybe this project has taken multiple years. So that's really where you dig deep and you really start diving in and thinking about, okay, what does this data actually mean? If I was a reader, what sort of things would I want to know? And that's how I sort of build it out. Um, it's funny, you know, the one thing I try to force myself to do is to write, now that I'm attending, you actually end up writing fewer full papers because you just have students and residents mm -hmm. and fellows. But I do try to force myself to write, you know, at least every few months, I'll try to write a paper from scratch by myself. Um, and I think it's important to go through that process. One, so you you respect the work that goes in from your students' residents when you just get spoiled and they just show up with the 40 references and you're like, okay, this actually takes a long time to do. Um, and two, I think it just it helps you again stay structured in the process and helps you be a better editor now you're editing more papers. Awesome. Thanks for that. Um, thanks for that outline. Um, so, you know, we've been talking about, um, you know, research and being academically productive, but I thought you just said podcasts, but apparently you're not only academically productive, you're a residency associate program director. You're, I think, the medical director of Retina at Baskin Palmer. You always have time to answer questions from students and residents like uh, Bilal and myself, and apparently you even see patients sometimes. So <laughs> our question is sometimes. how... How do you stay sane, or maybe you can maybe walk us through like your average day in the life of Jay Schreeder oh, and tell us what do you put in your sad, sad life yeah. to make it happen? Okay, oh, okay. so, <laughs> so <laughs> no, but to be serious, I mean, okay, so first of all, you have to enjoy, I mean, this is again, real super cliche, but you got to enjoy what you're doing. I mean, if you don't enjoy it and you're just doing it to do it, then you're not going to be happy, right? So, like, it doesn't feel like work yeah. if all the things you're doing enjoy. Now, obviously, there are things I do that are not enjoyable that are part of my job, right? No one enjoys, for example, mm -hmm. having to do some compliance, you know, 
webinar workshop that's required for your university job and no one enjoys for example having to sit and place orders in epic for 60 patients like that's not something you do for enjoyment However, um, you if you enjoy those parts of your life, then an academic job may be right for you, right? So like if you enjoy taking care of patients and operating and the tertiary level care and teaching fellows and residents, then that stuff's easy. If when people ask you questions, it I, I've seen different personalities. Like some people get super stressed by that sort of thing, right? That's not a, a moral judgment. That's just some people don't like the fact that they're just loaded with questions or emails all the time. And, and it, it, they'd rather sit there and kind of draft a response to each one. Um, I don't necessarily mind it. Um, I think the hardest part, Ben, so an average day, right? So I get up, uh, I immediately do what I probably shouldn't do. I should probably meditate for an hour according to Bill Gates, but I, I check my phone. <laughs> um, and then, you know, I kind of start from there. I, I kind of reorganize, you know, I, I think that unfortunately our phones and our emails have become kind of the fulcrum of everything we do. And um, I think organization, and it sounds again cliche, organization is super important. So like for me, I kind of organize myself each day. I'm like, okay, so like what do I have to do and what am I going to get done today, right? So, and I'll, I have even started adding things that are just like normal things to my day. I'll write, I have to do clinic today. I have this case today. Mm -hmm. I have this phone call today. Because if you don't reward yourself for the stuff you're doing that takes up most of the time, then you're going to have a list of eight things you never did. And you're going to get super depressed. And I've gone through that process where you're like, man, I'm never getting anything done. Well, you're actually doing stuff. You're just not crossing it off your list. So I started putting things that are normal, like, hey, I went for a run today. Hey, you know, I did my laundry, <laughs> like things like that. Um, but right, you know, the, right. I, I have to, sure. so the, I do certain things. So the podcast I record in advance. Um, I plan in advance. I review at least once a week and I kind of say, okay, where am I at? What do I need to do? Did I send the files to our audio team and our producers? How I always try to stay a month in advance. And that requires me to constantly mm. be thinking of new guests for the next month. And so I'm always kind of working on two month cycles. I'm thinking about the guests that I'm going to record with now that will go up in two months. I have the episodes I have to edit for next month. And then I'm like, okay, the episodes that were mm -hmm. supposed to go out now go out. So that's kind of always right. this background thing. That never goes off the list. I'll cross podcast off the list and it will reappear in two days. So that will keep come up over and over and over again. <laughs> um, re research stuff, you know, what I try to do is so I don't lose track of students. I have way too many students right now. I think I have like 12 different student projects or something. I, I So I actually drew out like a master graph in my office so I could keep track of who's doing what, um, because there's nothing worse oh, than gosh. a student who you work with emailing you and you're being like, well, actually, this here's your project. And they're like, that's not my paper and that's not my name. And I'm like, okay, uh, that's not good. So I try to keep track of who's who. Um, and then I just try to be fair, you know, like I, it's only gonna get worse, Ben. Like I, I think that I've never gotten so many different emails and I can't even imagine the attendings who have been here, other academic institutions who get emails for 20 years. I understand now why they don't always immediately respond. There's just too many things coming at once. But I try to be fair. So I try to at least once every day or two go back through my emails, make sure I didn't miss anything. And, and then I try to structure and be like, well, this student sent me this draft of this paper six days ago. This other student sent me a draft two days ago. Um, but this is edits and that was a new version. Now I've got to decide which one I do tonight because I only have time for one. Um, you start making those hard decisions. And, and then the final thing is I just try to be ultra efficient. Dr. Lamb, again, bring up his name again. He was always super efficient in clinic. He would like see a patient. No one was ready. He would like write a grant in between. He would like just pull out his laptop and just do it in a moment. <laughs> oh my God. And I was always just like, how can you do that? Like, you're not like, you're not relaxed. You don't have your sleepy time tea. You don't have your nice music on. Like, like everything's not optimal for you to write a grant. And 
I've actually learned over time that I'll take my computer into clinic. And if I have a slower moment, which never happened pre COVID, but it happens more now, I'll just put out my laptop and start doing mm -hmm. things. And it's painful, but you actually can cross a lot of things down. If you can get papers written, you can get things edited. Um, if I fly, which I'm not doing now, but if I, I've learned, I used to be one of those people who never did anything on flights, but now I'll just sit there. I'll download work before I get on. And I'll work for three or four hours. I'll take advantage of the time. And, you know, honestly, speaking to a lot of the attendings I know here and other places, that's what most of them do. I mean, you just figure out ways to work and be efficient when you can. A lot of people get a lot of their work done when they're not at home because the final thing I've tried to do is compartmentalize. I really try not to let my work spill over into things like family time, significant other time, staycation time. I can't say I'm always perfect but I really try to separate church and state now. And I don't think I did that as much when I was a fellow or starting as an attending, but if I learned if I can be more efficient mm -hmm. in the times where, you know, I have some downtime. Yeah. It sucks to not sleep in a plane or watch a stupid movie, but that means that when I see my significant other, or if I'm spending time watching movies with my family, I'm not thinking about that paper I need to edit or write. Um, it's kind of off my list or I've just like, Hey, I'm going to write it tomorrow, but it's impossible to do everything. You mentioned you mentioned the podcast a few times, and, and obviously we're really honored to be on it with you, uh, especially as a student. And I'm sorry for emailing you a bunch of times. Now I feel really guilty about it. Um, no, it's good. But it's all, uh, you of, know. it's all part of the game. <laughs> he loves you all. No, I'm like I'm like shaky. I'm like I'm never ever going to email him if, now. But um, no, if you don't play that, you know, you want to play the game, you stop playing. It, it's okay. It's all part of the you're right, all part of the right, plan for sure. And, you know, being on this podcast with you guys, I feel like I'm like on junior varsity right now. So I, I did want to pick your brain about the, about the podcast and ask you, you know, we were wondering, you know, straight from the cutter's mouth, a retina podcast, it's a mouthful. So how did you narrow it down to get to that name? And were oh, there any yeah. other potential names in the running? That's a great question. So the name, I'm going to give credit right away. Brian Hong was my co-fellow who had just graduated. And I was, I asked him and Ali and I was like, who was another co-fellow, I was like, hey, I need like an awesome name for a podcast. I'm like, Vitrectabidi. I don't remember. We had, I had a list of them. There, I, I wish I could remember. There were some really bad ones there. And he was like, oh, that's easy. Just like do it something like instead of straight from the horse's mouth, do straight from the cutter's mouth. I'm like, that's great. But then I was just like, well, how are yeah. people going to know what it's about? Because it's a great name. So then I made it a retina podcast, straight from cutter's mouth, a retina podcast. I'll be very honest. I think both of your names are way better. I think Eyes for Ears, no offense, honestly, Bilal, Eyes for Ears is the best no, ophthalmology podcast name out there. I mean, that's terrific. Ours is way too long. It's way too long. I would redo the name. I don't know. I would think of a shorter name. All credit to Brian, but it just becomes way too big. Uh, especially when you're trying to write a paper and you have a word count, it eats up like 12 words right there uh, the first time <laughs> yeah, you write yeah, it. So that's, that's painful. Yeah. Um, and the second thing I would do differently, I think I would do different intro music. I think I like both of your music better than mine. Um, I don't know why I chose this intro music. It reminded me of the Sports Center uh, thing from like the mid-2000s, I guess. But it definitely does not fit. Oh. And I've had a lot of people say they don't like it. But then when we actually polled people and say, hey, should we change it? They were like, no, we don't necessarily love it, but we kind of associate it at this point, so we don't need to change it. And I was like, okay, that's that's fair. Right. But yeah, I do, I do right. have some regrets. Huh. That's fair. Yeah. And, you know, along the lines of the podcast, I, I realize now I'm, I think, five days into my retina fellowship now, I realize that coordinating the free time among multiple retina specialists to do a podcast must be worthy oh, of yeah. multiple awards by itself. So uh, how how painful is it to try to coordinate these interviews? Like how how bad has it been? That's a good question. So I think we, I'll tell you, we talked about this last time actually at 100. I'll say it's been easier more recently than it was in the past. And that's probably just name recognition over time where people know what it is. 
So they're like, oh, I know what that is. Therefore, I will make time to do it. Um, and unfortunately, if anyone's going to end up canceling, it's going to be me and not the guest because I get called to a case or something. So it makes me feel bad. But I'll tell you at the beginning, if you notice at the beginning, there's a there's a, a slant towards people who would have known me either directly or through another person, right? Like there's a lot of wills attendings, a lot of people mm -hmm. I went to fellowship or residency with. Those people still show up. But I mean, I really had to go to people who were mentors and mentors of mine who would just be like, yeah, you know, we don't know what you're doing here, but we'll support you and we'll come on and do it. And like Alan Ho came on the first one. Carl Wajillo came on the sixth one. Carol Shields knew me from my time as a fellow. She came on. You know, they were just being generous with their time. Um, I think a lot of people actually didn't even respond or, you know, there are people who just never responded. Uh, and I've emailed multiple times and just never heard back. And then later, you know, they've responded because they're like, oh, I know what this is. Um, the coordinating can be difficult. Uh, I have started using Doodle. I probably just like, EndNote, I probably started should have used Doodle from the beginning, but I only started using it recently because I would be lazy. I, I I can be lazy about certain things. I got lazy about setting up the Doodle polls. I would just email people a list of dates and times. But um, you know, it's not bad. You know, people and and maybe it's also been easier just with coronavirus. I think people have just had more time. But yeah, it, it it definitely peaked in terms of difficulty about nine months in. In the last year or two years, it really has not been bad. That's awesome. Got gotcha. So, yeah, I mean, I'm sure a lot of the people who you've interviewed on your podcast are, are definitely heroes of yours. And we were kind of wondering who your heroes are in life. So do you want to shout out to anybody who's in medicine who's been your hero or even the real world who you've maybe not even met like, a, like an athlete or just somebody you look up to? Like, who are the people that you really look up to and who inspired you? So this has been the podcast cliches, but you can't be a South Asian immigrant without thanking your parents. Um, so and, and I will think, you know, <laughs> I do look up to my parents a lot for separate reasons. You know, my dad. <laughs> my dad my dad um you know it's my dad passed away when i was 12 so my memories of my father uh, my life in a lot of ways is kind of pre that and post that and i have much stronger memories obviously post that than pre that even though i was 12 at the time uh, mm -hmm. but my dad you know definitely was somebody who um was a, pushed us always to be better who pushed us to um to not waste time and i definitely it's funny i wish i had listened to him more when he was there i think i've I started doing a lot of things he said probably eight years after he passed. And maybe that's just a context concept of getting older, or maybe I just figured out later and they stuck with me. But, you know, my mom raised five of us from the time I was 12. You know, we ranged in age at that time from eight to 18. She raised five kids while working full time. You know, that, that, that's incredible. And I don't know how she did that, but I think the biggest lesson I took from her was that you mind over matter. Sometimes you can, you can, it's amazing what you're actually capable of. If you're forced in a situation where you just have to, you know, bear down and just do what you need to do. Um, and to be more fun with this, I, I think other people I would think about. So I don't know, athlete, you know, who's like, I mean, Michael Jordan obviously was incredible. I think personality wise, he and I probably would not have gotten along. I'm too nice of an athlete. I was never good enough. I was never athletic enough, but I was also never cutthroat enough to be a good athlete. I was the guy who like, oh, if, I'm up five, if I'm up five love in a set of tennis, I, I would definitely start feeling bad for the other person. I'm not like, oh yeah, I'm winning by a lot oh come on um, yeah i don't I, I, did not, I don't i don't have the killer instinct i'm very competitive but i'm much more competitive if it's close if it's not close i feel bad so yeah, okay. that's a fault that's um true. so who would i want to meet I, I mean i think as from an athletic standpoint i just really admire i don't think we would get along either because he probably wouldn't understand my english and i may understand his spanish but not really i rafa nadal is probably my favorite athlete uh, Ooh. Oh, Nadal Federer. Okay. 
excited uh, for yeah. you, but I, I can respect the decision. So you have to put I it can, in context, but... right? So I was a Nadal fan. I was what I was a teenager in college, and Nadal came up. Federer was winning everything. He was awesome, obviously. But when you're a teenager, you like the counterculture. You like mm-hmm. the the people. You're like, well, I want someone to stand up to Federer, and he was the only guy who stood up to Federer. He was different. Fair, he played a fair. different style. The thing, and the thing I always admired about him was that he was not as talented in my mind. I don't think any of us would, in certain ways, I think we wouldn't say he was as gifted. But right. it was always about mind over matter, right? right? right. It was always, this is the classic, yep. I love the athlete. I love the athlete where it it's clearly about the, there's obviously ability there to be great, but it's the heart. That's why we all would like Jordan. And yeah. He had the ability, yeah. but it's the heart. And Federer has the heart too. Yep. And I've, I've learned to love Federer over time. And I really think, for I hate Novak Djokovic. I hate. I say hate lightly. I hate as much as you hate him. I agree. Athlete. I hate him. I hate um, him. We yep. can all sign off on that. We can but, all. Yeah, we all agree there. <laughs> I mean, I'll tell you this. I, I I don't think I've ever seen anyone play tennis as well as Roger Federer played in like '04 to '06. Like I think he, he's suffered oh, a little sure. bit from. He's been around so long, and he kind of looks sort of the same though he looks older over time. That we kind of forget yeah. how good he was when he was fast, right? And right, man. right. Nadal and Djokovic kind of play. I mean, they play a little differently. I think Nadal is not as physical. He tries to finish points faster. They kind of just play the same way their whole career. And so Djokovic obviously is incredible, mm-hmm. and he seems like this wall. I just think if you watch, look at the head-to-head, Djokovic was losing most of his matches to Federer until Federer started declining. Until there was until Federer couldn't hit through him because he wasn't moving around fast enough um but yeah nadal was it'd be cool to meet either of those guys i've seen them both play live which i've been fortunate enough to uh in miami i'll tell you and i saw federer play i think it was 06 i saw him play live or 07 i've never seen anyone more graceful play tennis like and and i guess maybe that was oh my god yeah i mean i guess that's the other part as someone who plays tennis it was just harder to relate to roger federer you can't watch roger federer and be like i'm gonna go out tomorrow and play like roger federer like, it's just right. it's just not possible right. like you just you can't play that way retweet. Like, again retweet. i would just say anyone who's listening to this who's like i don't understand federer wasn't that good just watch any federer like u.s open match from like 0405 like watch like federer play like oh. agassi oh. in the 05 final poor There's andy great highlights on youtube yeah oh. 05 finally destroyed him destroyed him just, and agassi was playing really right. really well and he was playing really really well and I think yeah. the secret part that no one talks about is they did slow down the court speeds um, and they did make the game slower on purpose, much like the NBA made mm-hmm. basketball faster on purpose to increase scoring. Tennis slowed the game down because people like these long rallies that make you ooh and ah, and that certainly hurt yeah. him. I mean, like he was a guy, but y- you uh-huh. watch him in his prime, man. He did things, and the commentators just like, there's nothing you can do about this. Like, So off topic. Yeah. But yeah, it would be cool to meet any of those guys. For sure. No, we like that answer. We we respect it. There's no there's no uh there's no hate here for any fandom. So we will we will agree to disagree. But yeah, <laughs> hustle always wins over heart. I mean, hustle and heart are gonna win the day. So we we want to ask you some fun ones here. We want to do rapid fire with you because we know you you did rapid fire in the in the past with some of your episodes. But so we want to hear what is your favorite music in the OR. Give us what you like to listen oh. to. So I'm not super picky. Uh, I let the staff pick because usually they pick well. Mm. Um, in Miami, they pick very well. Uh, however, if I got to pick the type of music I want to listen to, I don't want to listen to something slow. Uh, I don't want mm-hmm. to listen to something that's, you know, I don't, I, I don't like, like, I remember as a student, I tried putting on like rock in the OR. It doesn't like hard rock. It doesn't work. Like you need, I, yeah. I think like, I like like 
Florida is pretty good. Um, okay. I don't like too much EDM. I think you need something with like a beat. Like I used to love as a fellow, like opening or closing a case to welcome to my house because I was in Philly and I was from Miami and the OR staff just associated that song <laughs> with me. Right. That's right. That's funny. Um, yeah, yeah, but like, I don't know. I, I There's certain songs I hate. Like I, there are some songs that come on. I'm just like, I cannot believe this song is on the, that's how you know a case has really sucked is if you hear the same song <laughs> that you hate come on for the fifth time on the radio and the same case, you're like, okay, we need to close this case. Like this case has gone on way too long. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Okay, well, that's a good one. So, what about like, you mentioned movies a little earlier you, during COVID nineteen or during a little break, your staycation, yeah. you watched some movies. So, what, what was the last movie you watched? What was your big? Oh, this is going to be embarrassing. You guys are going to laugh. It, it, the last movie I watched, we came are. Out Let's hear it. Forty five years ago, and was Jaws. Oh. Never seen it until wow, I saw it last week. Isn't that random? I still I don't know it. why we saw it. Yeah, don't, I think don't my sister spoil. was like, it was on HBO Max, and we saw. Yeah, spoilers that there's a shark. Uh, it eats people. Yeah. Um, it was good. I was surprised. It was actually, I never had been like, I never, never wanted to see it. It was really good. I was impressed. Good job, Spielberg. Spielberg's going to do something once they. Yeah. And then, and then we were also wondering, like, what is your, you know, we're all looking forward to this whole, you know, era that we're in right now, COVID 19 ending. What are you planning on doing after it's over? What are you looking forward to? What do you miss about, you know, our past normal lives? Wow. Um, you know, I, 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 I'm a, I used to love going to the gym, but I've sort of replaced that with running. Um, but I, would, I wouldn't mind going back to the gym, though. I think it's going to be a long time until we feel like gyms are, are clean. Uh, I'm going to miss travel, man. Like, yeah. um, I really like traveling. Uh, my fiance lives on the other side of the country, which has been exceptionally challenging during the, the pandemic. Good for academic uh, productivity. Uh, bad for interpersonal <laughs> development. Um, Sure. So that's that's challenging, um, and I I think we enjoy traveling together, right? So um, that shut mm-hmm. down. We were supposed to go to the wedding of one of our friends in Italy, and we were flying to Milan, ironically enough. So that that's not happening. Uh, you know, we try to take at least one nice trip a year and go somewhere uh-huh. we haven't been before and explore culture. So I think that's the saddest part about all this is just like you can't interact, and it, I you can't interact with people a lot. And then. I just think at work, it's just, um, I'm going to miss having like grand rounds with everyone there. I don't know if we're ever going to go back. I think people have kind of, at different institutions, have kind of tasted it where you don't have to actually wake up. You can be like, I think there was, there was a guy, I don't want to call him out. I gave grand rounds at Hopkins this morning. There, there was definitely an attending who had his video on and he, mm-hmm. asked, he was lying in bed like with his shirt off. Um, <laughs> I could see him the whole oh time gosh. I was talking and I don't know if he knew I could see him, oh, but man. I could see him. and. Um, hopefully it's not in the recording oh. they put online, but you know, like people, we've gotten used to this a little bit where like, you can just kind of do it while you're getting ready and listen. And like, it's really hard to go back, but I think for building a community and building an organization where people feel part of something, you really just need to have interpersonal interaction and people not to be afraid of each other. I'm going to miss, I miss hugging my patients. I miss, uh, shaking hands and kisses on the cheek. Those are kind of the things I miss yeah. being able to see whether or not they're smiling or, and I'm sure they're looking at me to figure out what my mood is you learn how to smile with your eyes so that's a lot of things i didn't really narrow it down but these are things that come to mind cool well i think that uh brings our questions to a close thanks for the opportunity yeah thanks for letting us come on if we did not ask a question that you wanted to um wanted us to ask a dear audience you can hate tweet us at eyes for ears (laughs) um and (laughs) For a while, can you do you want to tell them how they can reach yeah. out to you? 
And you can find me on Twitter at Bilal underscore 1712, and you can hate DM me, and I will accept it. <laughs> and just put uh, at Red in yeah, the podcast, you know, both... and I will, I will join in heckling whoever you're heckling. It will be perfect. <laughs> lovely, lovely. <laughs> Sounds uh, good. We definitely want to thank you, Dr. Truth, for the, spending you know all of your time for the past, I think it's almost four years now when I look at the dates, to produce such yeah. high-quality education for anyone in ophthalmology and retina and keeping it going with such quality over the past um, you know, almost four years. So thank you on behalf of your audience. Yeah, no, thank, thank you, you as students as well for all the help you've done. Thank you both for doing this uh, on short notice. I thank you both for going easy on me and asking me anything too embarrassing. And uh, thank you both for what you're doing. Your podcast are the next step. I'm Windows 3.0. This is, you know, Windows XP and uh, whatever came next. 95. I don't know what came next after yeah. Windows 95. Windows 7. We're, we're, we're um, Linux. We're like the crazy Linux. people. Don't, don't that. And then, yeah, Ben, yeah, I'm, just keeping, I'm just keeping the seat warm so you can take over when you're done with your fellowship. That's kind of, uh, I, know, uh, I know where the future is. I can see that we're writing on the uh, wall already. No, 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 don't say that. I, no one wants to see you go, Dr. Schroeder. No one wants to see you go. And I have to, I have, I don't know if, if this wants to be edited in before. Uh, all credit to Andrew Powell for coming to name for our podcast, Eyes for Yours. I take no credit for that. So <laughs> give a shout out for. Okay. Guys, thank you so much and have uh, a great night. Yeah, you too. Get some sleep. Thanks, take care. As always, you can find this podcast and other podcast episodes on our website, retinapodcast.com. That's R-E-T-I-N-A podcast.com. All 250 episodes, including this one, can be found there sorted by category. You can find links to subscribe to our mailing list that will give you emails with the most up-to-date episodes. You can also find us on your podcast store on your favorite mobile device, whether that's Apple or Android. You can contact us directly on Twitter at Retina Podcast or via Facebook or by emailing us directly at retinapodcast at gmail.com. That's R-E-T-I-N-A podcast at gmail.com. Thank you everyone who gives us great episode ideas. Uh, we also appreciate anyone who leaves us reviews on the Apple Podcast app. Thank you, Dr. Mike Benacasa, Dr. Angela Chang for all the work they do on the podcast. Thank you, Ben and Bilal, for coming to guest host this episode. And thank you, listeners, for all the articles you read and publish, the conversations you inspire here and tweet, and most importantly, the patient care you deliver on a daily basis. Finally, thank you to my mentor, Dr. Sridhar, for hosting 250 fantastic episodes over the last four years and continue to inspire all of us with your energy, curiosity, and humor. This is Louis Kai on behalf of Dr. Sridhar, signing off. feeling. This is straight from the cutter's mouth. <laughs> <laughs>